This Opus of Triloquy is brought to you by Roundtable, your hub for live and on-demand digital courses in music, literature, the arts, and more. Triloquy listeners are invited to a world-class music education, including diving deeper into music theory, celebrating Nina Simone, and studying Schumann and Chopin with renowned expert Louis Rosen. Go to roundtable.org music and use the code LOKI20 for 20% off on any course, especially for Triloquy listeners. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining me once again. And if you're a new listener, thanks so much for checking out this show. Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize the idea of classical music by expanding the dialogues and perspectives that folks typically connect to that phrase, classical music. Each week I offer a news story or event from the field and offer my thoughts on it. I feature a dialogue with someone in the arts who's doing the work of changing the status quo in their own unique way. And I end each week with the triloquy that highlights something from my life that's helping me think about the work of dismantling the traditions that are holding this genre of so-called classical music behind. For more information on the show, to check out past opuses and to contribute, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. I'm incredibly excited to share with you this week my conversation with Maria Manuela Goyanes, who is the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. She's doing some really incredible things that I can't wait for y'all to learn more about. After the uh, interview, after my dialogue with Maria uh, in the Triloquy, I'm going to speak to uh, my work with the uh, American Composers Orchestra a little bit. I'm actually laying in bed right now in a, a hotel in Cincinnati where I just got done with a collaboration with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. It's actually a little bit after uh, two o'clock right now, and I have an airport shuttle coming in exactly two hours. So <laughs> um, for apologies in advance if uh, I'm a little stir crazy or sleepy, but you know, some, some really incredible work that I just want to um, highlight uh, and share with y'all as we continue to talk about uh, dismantling this thing called classical music. But for right now, uh, I want to go to a story that just about all of y'all have been <laughs> sending me over this past week um, that many of you have been talking about. And uh, I'm going to talk about it as well. You know, there are some weeks where I really got to look for the hottest drama in classical music. But this past week, it was pretty easy. I'm reading here from CNN.com. The headline is North Carolina radio station declines to broadcast six Met opera performances over objections to content. Let me uh, read you a little bit from this article. Uh, it says a listener supported nonprofit classical radio station in North Carolina said it will not air six operas performed by New York's Metropolitan Opera this season over objections to content within the operas. The choice from the 24-hour classical radio station WCPE comes during a season where the Metropolitan Opera has chosen to 
showcase new works outside of the typical opera canon uh, written by people who are less likely to be featured prominently in the opera world. WCPE, which serves Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina, says it has aired performances by the Met for the last 35 years. But in a letter to listeners, Deborah Proctor, the station's president, said six Met performances were deemed unsuitable for broadcast because they, quote, are written in a non-classical music style and have adult themes and language. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time uh, unpacking this. I would love for y'all to form your own opinions about this, but there are a few points I want to uh, just briefly dive into. First and foremost, when uh, this uh, president of this radio station is uh, accusing these operas of not being written in a classical style, that points directly to what I'm always preaching and always talking about when it comes to decolonizing classical music. The idea of there being a classical style is rooted in a white supremacist way of thinking. And the more I do this work, you know, for longtime listeners are familiar with my views on this, but the more I do this work, the more I just feel like I have to squarely say that our use of that phrase classical music and the aesthetics and the ideas that we connect to that phrase are rooted in white supremacist conditioning. Classical music is not unique to Western Europe. So when you say that there is uh, music or operas that aren't written in that Western European style and you have to marginalize music just because it doesn't sound like that, you're doing the work of white supremacy in the arts. It is It, it goes so unchallenged. And as we continue to identify ways um, in which our country and our world is moving in the wrong direction, whether it's politics, all this war that's going on, capitalism, we have to understand how the arts ties into that. So the idea that um, operas like Anthony Davis's uh, Malcolm X inspired work, which we're going to hear a little bit of before we get into the interview, the, the notion that that isn't in a classical style is absolutely ridiculous. And it outlines white supremacy culture in the arts. That's number one. Number two, I actually saw this coming as it relates to uh, Anthony Davis, uh, his uh, Malcolm X inspired opera. Of course, you know, his opera isn't the only one that uh, inspired this these actions from WCPE in North Carolina. But uh, when I went to go see Fire Shut Up in My Bones in 2021, you know, I left a little bit upset thinking about that the first time a black story is being told uh, on this stage, it's a story about um, child abuse, child sexual abuse. So, you know, I was like, wow, so is this the way black culture and black stories are introduced to this space? So, you know, I was really excited to hear about uh, this year, this, this fall in 2023, uh, the Malcolm X inspired work coming to the stage because I saw it as the traditional audience's uh, opportunity uh, to see something that they may have historically been opposed to, namely a person who they may have been uh, opposed to portrayed on the screen, on the screen, on the stage um, through their medium. OK, so there are certain truths, certain histories um, that are connected with the name Malcolm X, certain um, uh, miseducations, I'll say, that are connected to the name Malcolm X. A lot of people think of him um, as this radical who was a separatist and the white devil and da da da. But if you really know his story, after he went to Mecca and did his pilgrimage, he understood that the ways in which Islam were uh, uh, being spread uh, through NOI, through the Nation of Islam, was not 
in line with uh, the the Islamic faith overall. So really, his story is about unity and it's about bringing people together. But the racist and and just uh, anti-black ideas that we have uh, around this character, you know, prevent so many people from seeing his his true story. Like I said, I saw this coming. So it's hard for me to believe that there isn't a tinge of that in uh, Miss Proctor's decision to keep this and other operas off of the airways in w, uh, on WCPE. This is something uh, that, that we have to think about. Um, and lastly, I really believe that listeners need to understand that classical radio has you know, always been exploratory. It's always been that means for people who don't want to get dressed up or don't want to spend the money to go into these concert halls or opera houses to really get that, uh, to get that perspective. It's violent. You know, we talk about different types of violence. There's not just physical violence, but there's also cultural violence. I'll go as far as to say artistic violence. It's violent to keep audiences, uh, whether you're talking about someone 70 years old or seven years old, away from this art, away from these histories and away from the dialogues that they can inspire. And it, it's really a shame that this radio station is uh, is going to find itself on the wrong side of history by not allowing such a brilliant, um, provocative, sure, but brilliant uh, piece of music away from the airwaves. Where do we draw the line? If there is a general news story uh, on an NPR station, a so-called NPR station uh, that a program director finds inappropriate, are we going to keep the news from people? Are we going to keep the real world from people? I think it's safe to say that most folks would say that's inappropriate. People have to know what's going on in the world. So if they have to know what's going on in the world in a uh, real life way, we have to know what's going on in the world in an artistic way as well. So again, I'll have this article uh, in the description. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll write a letter uh, to them. I, I don't know how much good that does. Maybe I'll inspire other stations or, or see if they can't put a little extra attention uh, behind these new operas. You know, uh, last season, back when uh, Scott was here, we talked about, uh, you know, the Met going into their endowment and spending, I think they said $30 million on new opera. I see this as a good thing. And, and this Malcolm X opera, by the way, is not new. It uh, premiered, I think, back in the 70s, um, but it's new to Met audiences, at least uh, live audiences. Anyway, the, 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 the gatekeeping and the lines we draw in this sand around these uh, arbitrary ideas around classical music and what is and isn't acceptable it's it's really getting real. And, you know, like I said earlier, I'll repeat myself. This is an iteration of white supremacy that we have to fight against. If you are um, against uh, racism in the everyday world, if, if you're against um, violence against marginalized people, you have to understand that this is a part of that. And I hope that you'll do your part in spreading the word uh, around the broadcast uh, of this incredible, incredible piece of music uh, by Anthony Davis and uh, and and help us, you know, continue to dismantle uh, the status quo and have dialogue around so-called classical music that's going to allow more people uh, to uh, in, enjoy works like these. Really, really important work and really appreciate everyone who uh, has uh, helped put this <laughs> on my radar. Like I said, this was hot news this week. So go check out that article and uh, we'll see how uh, things update. But 
In the meantime, I'm really excited once again to share my conversation with uh, Maria Manuelo Goyanes, who is the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater uh, down in Washington, D.C. We talk about uh, a lot of really interesting stuff. They have a something called Weisberg Commissions going on where they're not only uh, staging operas by uh, historically marginalized folks in the arts, uh, but putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, actually paying people uh, to create new works for new stories uh, to be told. See, the, the, the theater world doesn't seem to be as afraid of new stories as uh, the opera world is, or at least this one radio station in particular. So I uh, really tip my hat to Willie Mammoth for doing that good work. I also talk with Maria uh, about coming up in opera, being a first generation um, uh, artist uh, in the uh, in the theatrical arts. Um, and we also uh, begin our conversation by talking about Queens, uh, Queens, New York, how incredible of, of a, a area that is, how diverse it is, and how that uh, served as the foundation for Maria's career um, in arts management. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit of music by you know, a very, very important Queens musician at the end uh, of our dialogue. But since we're talking about this Malcolm X inspired opera by Anthony Davis, I thought uh, that to get us into the conversation, I would share a, an excerpt uh, from that opera as performed by the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. So here's a little uh, music by Anthony Davis from his Malcolm X inspired opera to get us into my conversation with Maria Manuela Guyanes from Woolly Mammoth. Hope y'all enjoy and uh, see you on the other side. describe Queens. Queens is the most uh, diverse in terms of um, racial, ethnic, you know, folks who live per capita in all of the United States. So that's amazing. Also the most diverse borough of New York City, which is obviously a huge city. Uh, I would describe it as a place that has like some of the best restaurants hole in walls. So good. Also, I would, you know, when I think about Queens, I think about Shea Stadium and the Mets. I think about Queens Theater in the Park. I think about the Hall of Science and the fact that you can see an eyeball and somebody like cuts into the eyeball. What? <laughs> um, I could think of, I, I think about Flushing Meadow Corona Park and that crazy globe that is in the middle of it that was for a World's Fair that like a lot of people can't remember, but some people do remember still. Um, that happened um and the u.s open which is happening like right now yeah you know at arthur ash stadium and i think about um how people meet and how my parents met at a church da dance in jackson heights queens and that's how a spaninican kid was born spanish and dominican my mom's dominican. <laughs> my dad's from spain um and I, I think about just like a lot of community, a lot of people, you know, from all walks of life, but, you know, they're neighbors and they're friends. And I think about the, the uh, family um, 
of Hasidic Jews who live right next to my parents now, and my parents are older, and how much they look after them, and how much my parents look after, um, uh, you know, when they when they need somebody to turn on turn off the lights or something like that, and be the person who comes on Sabbath and does that. Like my dad does that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about community a lot when I think about Queens. I think about gold hoops too. <laughs> so you're making me want to get on the seven train now and go find something to eat over there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Amen. Or the E or the F. Oh, there you go. Yep. <laughs> so when we talk about the arts, uh, we talk about representation a lot, uh, having you know, especially kids see people who look like them doing things that they wouldn't otherwise or might not otherwise think that they could do. Did growing up in such a diverse ecosystem impact your views on what was or maybe what wasn't possible for you as an artist? Oh, for sure. Well, because also, you know, a lot of folks who are um, in Queens are immigrants or children of immigrants. Um, And that's a very particular kind of mentality of like, at least for my parents and my family, it was very much like, you know, you're the firstborn in this country. And so therefore you have to build roots and you have to get the family and you have to do the things and you got to go work for a bank or something, you know what I mean? And stay close to home. My dad fixed the buses for the New York City Transit for 35 years. My mom was the, yeah, my mom was a kindergarten teacher and they expected their kid to be a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, you know, something like that, you know? And so I definitely, um, I definitely felt like I had to, like, sometimes I describe it as like, I feel like I'm living a parallel life. Hmm. There is still a person named Maria Manuela Goyanes in another universe who, you know, went to St. John's, went to Baruch, you know, became a bank teller or whatever, and like had a bunch of kids in Queens, like lives close to family, like all of that kind of stuff, you know? Um, And I feel like sometimes I'm living a parallel life. Like, how did I get to be the one who got to go into the theater and Mm -hmm. make plays for a living and actually not do bad, you know, (laughs) do pretty well. Um, and so, so it's interesting. Um, I also think a lot about a lot of my friends who I grew up with going to the community center. We used to go to the Pominac community center in Cacasina Boulevard, learn taekwondo and gymnastics and all Mm. of these things. And, and just like how amazing they are and, um, what kind of opportunities there were for them or not, you know? It sounds like you had so many choices coming up, so many things to get into, to experience. How did theater become that thing? I was a bookworm. I still am a bookworm and um, a bit of an introverted kid. And so I would like to read a lot and that kind of stuff, you know. And I think that it's really sort of sparked my imagination. I would just like think about these scenes and things like that. And when I... um It was in high school when I was um, first introduced to like the professional theater and like they brought, you know, they had um, Manhattan Theater Club had like a inner city program and they went to my magnet school, (laughs) inner city. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, (laughs) go to, you know, go to um, a play for the first time. And there was something about seeing. Seeing people up on stage. um, Embodying you know, characters and 
I, I just didn't understand that you could actually make a living doing that. Mm-hmm. And there was something about it that felt really like so exciting to try and understand. And I think that there's a spiritual aspect to it. So there's something about, so my mother grew up very religious. She still is. She grew up in a convent school in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And I think, and I always rebelled against Catholicism and religion and that kind of stuff. But I actually feel like now in hindsight, when I look back on like the choices that I've made, I'm like, oh, I was looking for the thing to make meaning of my life. You know what I mean? How I was going to make meaning of my life. And religion does that. Spirituality does that for a lot of folks. And for me, finding the idea of being in the present moment in the theater, trying to actually be right here now with an actor and going back and forth and trying to tell a story that then meant something to the people where you were, who were watching it, that, you know, it's, it's, it is like church in some ways. Um, there was this great mentor, um, Jim Houghton, who passed, who started the Signature Theater in New York. And he had something that he said that I just, I'm just going to repeat because it's brilliant. And he said, you know, I, um, the artists and audience get to breathe the same air and we're colliding with ourselves in the story we're seeing or the people that we're seeing it with or the artists that we bump into. And so that's what theater is, you know, um, that collision, that, that sort of being able to see, see yourselves and breathe, breathing that same air together. And there's something spiritual about it. There just is. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. You know, what you make me think about is, you know, when you're talking about your parents, you make me think about how odd my career still seems to so much of my family. You know, they maybe they kind of get it. Maybe they don't, but they support it nonetheless. I wonder what your experience is there when you uh, started in theater and maybe even when you were picking up steam and finding success did you feel like you could bring your family along, your community along? Was this something that they could wrap their minds around? Oh, no way. <laughs> um, I I tried for sure. But I, I know that what my parents and what my dad in particular um, really cared about was being able to be financially sta- stable, right? Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until I actually started to make a living in the theater um, that, and that he saw me getting a salary and like being able to actually live and, uh, and, and thrive, you know, and that's the, this is the stuff that's like, we can have a whole podcast about this, but there was a moment that I felt so sad and ashamed and proud when I realized that in the theater, I was making more than my dad ever made as a mechanic for the buses in mm. New York. And I thought that I, there was something so tough about that for me because of what we, what we value, what we don't value. And I think, um, yeah. So I, I, I did take them to plays and made them like, take me to stuff like we ushered for the roundabouts um production of cabaret with natasha richardson like over and over and over again because i wanted to see it so bad over and over and i you know was like i'm going to do this i'm going to do this i'm going to find you know and find my way um but i know that they were like what is happening (laughs) (laughs) and now to to a certain extent like 
I don't know if this happens to you with your family and stuff, but but because you play an instrument, maybe it's a little bit different, right? Because you sort of have to practice to be good at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my family's constantly saying, like, you work too much. <laughs> you work too much. You go and you do, you, you know, um, you're always doing your plays. You're always doing this thing. You're, you know, they're they're taking advantage of you because the only thing that they can think of is, like, you know, the man taking advantage of somebody who is, like, you know, trying their best. And, and it's been a long time to try and, like, sort of get them to understand that like I love what I do this is yes it's work yes I should take a vacation yes all of those things but when I say I have to go do a meeting it's not onerous (laughs) not always (laughs) sometimes it is that is true that is a true statement sometimes it is but but that's the that's it's been a real learning curve for them and for me so when folks like me go to the theater, of course, I enjoy seeing people on stage doing their thing, the the lighting, all of the, the stage setting, all of that is great. But there's so much more that goes into the production of a single show, much less the maintenance of an entire theater company. Uh, within that context, I wonder if you could talk about what your work looks like today in the, uh, in the, in the day-to-day. What I love about the theater is the day-to-day changes all the time because you're working on different projects and you're working on, you know, with different artists on those projects and trying to get things to, you know, come to fruition. And what coming to fruition means is like helping usually a number of artists feel, have courage and be able to be vulnerable and be able to sort of share part of themselves um, or try and understand something about the world that is really hard to understand. So I think, um, I think my, that's what I love about the theater is that, is that my day to day is so different, but you're right. There's so much stuff that happens behind the scenes that I literally had no idea about. And I actually feel like people don't even see or understand that there are like real jobs behind here, behind the scenes that people need to get paid and can get paid to do. Mm -hmm. And then I want people to go into the theater to get paid to do them, right? So, like, we have people who drape clothes and actually, like, create clothes from scratch. We have people who make wigs. And, like, I've seen wigs made, oh, my God, one hair at a time, like, putting it in (laughs) and, like, gorgeous wigs. Like, I, I mean, we have people who are electricians. We have people who are carpenters. We have people who are engineers. We have people who help figure out to how to make people fly less at Wooly because we can't afford that kind of stuff, but other places, (laughs) you know what I mean? In the theater, like the magic of it and stuff like that. Um, We, you know, there's just, yes, there are actors on stage. Yes. There are directors helping those actors and playwright writing the plays and writing the musicals and actually making them happen. Absolutely. The, all the stuff that goes on stage, but there's so many people behind the scenes. I didn't even go into like the marketing department, the fundraising department. There are accountants in the theater there. You know what I mean? We need controllers in the theater. We need people who are managers in the theater. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of different opportunities for people. And I hope any young person who is hearing this, you know, feels like, oh, maybe I can, maybe I can go into the theater. I love the arts and I, I always wanted to do finance. Maybe I can do finance in the arts. And the answer is yes, you can. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Did I answer your question? 
Oh yeah, and we're we're going to talk about Woolly Mammoth Theater uh, here shortly. But I, you know, when you talk about electricians being a part of theater companies and people who work in makeup and costume design, it seems that many of those trajectories make sense. If you are an electrician who's interested in theater, you have work in a theater somewhere. What was your trajectory like? I mean, going from artist on the stage to a, a broader set of responsibilities. <laughs> I love this. so funny. I, I really, as an actor, I peaked in college playing the shrew in Taming of the Shrew. It was typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I got, I got this. I did it. I don't need to do it again. Um, you were tamed. <laughs> I, yeah, right. No, I tamed them. And then I didn't oh, need very to good. work on it anymore. Yeah, there you right. Go. <laughs> so um, the job was done. <laughs> so so I, I um, trained as a director, and I have directed a bunch of um, different types of projects, immersive projects, outdoor projects, new plays, things like that. And, um, and I always really liked making things happen, period. Just like I really loved making things happen. And I have always been really drawn to, as, as I told you, I'm a bookworm. I love writing. I love the written word. I love thinking about structures and writing and stories and things like that and how to make them more, um, impactful. And so to me, um, I essentially, I started, you know, doing some internships and like ended up getting a job, which was like totally, you know, right place, right time kind of job situation. And, you know, was able to move towards a kind of um, producing role, which I would say is like making stuff happen. I mean, that's like literally what I, what I do. Right. And so the part where I have moved to now as an artistic director is having a the pleasure and the honor and the opportunity to be able to open um, the theater that I work for and curate who comes in and shares their work um, and um, makes this a home for whatever time that they need that they need to make it for for whatever play it is that they're working on. And so, getting to choose these projects and these artists is just like a dream come true, especially for a place like Woolly Mammoth, whose ideals really match my own. So let's talk a little bit about Woolly Mammoth Theater. First of all, I hadn't thought about a Woolly Mammoth in many years, so it's been great to have that imagery Well, they're in my coming mind. back, by the way. The oh, stem really? cell situation. Yeah. Oh, totally. You can. Okay. It's so crazy. <laughs> many, many yeah, more costumes you know. and wigs, it sounds like, made from those... Uh... <laughs> You know what's so funny? Okay, small little tangent, just so that you know. Um, a library in Virginia um, wrote to us and said, hey, Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, we have this mammoth tusk that the kids are just basically using as a coat hanger in this library. Oh, no. We think that it would be better served if it was at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company. And I was like, well, that's weird. At a theater company instead of a museum? Okay. Who knows? Whatever. You know, they were like, do you want this mammoth tusk? And we were like, yeah, sure. Of course we want a mammoth tusk. Why wouldn't we want a mammoth tusk? And it comes in with this like little piece of paper that's laminated that says actual mammoth tusk, which is hilarious. <laughs> this is the provenance that it says this mammoth lived 15,000 to 18,000 years ago, was about 30 years old when it, you know, died and blah, blah, blah. And this is its tusk. And I was like, this has to be a fake. 
there's no way, right? <laughs> that this Virginia library randomly and like is giving me the provenance is like a little piece of paper. And um, and I wrote to the Smithsonian and shared pictures with them. And their paleobiologist wrote me back and said, it is indeed a mammoth tusk. Wow. Wow. <laughs> totally. Totally amazing. Um, so now we're figuring out uh, where to display it at Woolly Mammoth. But we are a theater company. <laughs> we are not a museum for tusks or a museum <laughs> in any kind of way. But it's a theater company that was started about 44 years ago by these um, amazing visionaries who had this, you know, wanted to create a kind of um, risky, provocative, challenging type of theater. And at the time, the mainstream theater was, you know, Broadway runouts and tours, as well as the regional theater uh, movement was really just getting started. It was about 20 years in arena stage here in DC and, um, the Alley Theater in Houston, um, Dallas Theater Center, Cleveland Playhouse was around at that time and had been around for a long time, actually, before then, um, were doing work that was like, you know, uh, a lot of Shakespeare classics, that 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 kind of stuff. So um, the uh, and the, the theater company, these actors got together and wanted to put on these sort of plays that you know, made an audience go, whoa, what's going on here? Things that people hadn't seen before. Um, and so this is a theater company who's like, who has continued to do that. I'm only the second person to have this job as artistic director. The I followed the founder, one of the founders, Howard Chowett, and I feel really lucky to be here. In the orchestral world, we're always talking about balance between the Beethoven, the Mozart, and you know what's new, living composers or those who have been marginalized. What are your ideas on balancing new and exciting work against what many people think audiences should know, the Shakespeare? Yeah, I I love that question. And you know, for, for me, this this idea of risk goes much deeper than, you know just like things that we think of as risky of like nudity, et cetera, right? It's really about what are the topics that we're talking about that aren't really being talked about in um, in our in our communities, with our friends, you know, with our families. And it's um, it's a conversation that maybe should be had, you know, how can um, how can we talk about the things that and make meaning of the things that really sort of make us human and are hard to talk about. And that's the risk here, you know, um, to, to really sort of dig into some topics and ideas that, um, that might be hard, hard to talk about, you know, and we're here to sort of spark that conversation, to spark that, that dialogue and, um, for folks to be able to actually sort of really um, be able to grapple with those with those ideas and those themes. That's what I think is the conversation around riskiness, right? The, the, when I first got to Woolly um, at a previous theater company, uh, the idea of talking about anti-racism, and this is, you know, in 2018, mm -hmm. um, felt risky to them. It wow. felt risky to them. They wanted to talk about it as diversity. 
And when I got to Woolly, you know, we were doing a lobby renovation. And one of the things that we put on the wall um, right from the beginning was we, you know, aim to be a brave space, an anti-racist space, you know, a home for uh, relentless inquiry and experimentation, you know, these, these kinds of words. And, you know, one might say that I was taking a risk doing that you know, because it was alienating folks. But man, it's the truth. That's what we were here here to do, at least, you know, in terms of my being at Woolly and my leadership coming from my background as a Latina, you know? Yeah. You know, and I don't take for granted the fact that, you know, especially following the murder of George Floyd, there has been so much use of the word diversity, use of the word inclusion, equity, those those sorts of ideas. But I think you make a really great point in prioritizing or the need to prioritize anti-racism specifically, I, just for the uh, the sake of people um, who might need that unpacked a little bit more. I wonder if you could say more, why specifically anti-racism is something to the front, as opposed to just making a DEI statement, as it were, and posting it on the wall or on the website? Yeah, I, I think of it as an active way of being i as opposed to diversity which feels like sort of a general kind of you know haze of lots of different things but doesn't necessarily tell you how to um what the journey looks like to do those things anti-racism is specifically saying we will not be racist like that is what we're trying to do and striving to do right mm -hmm. and so to me it it actually activates um, the work in a much clearer and focused way that I feel really connected to. And I, I, I sometimes fear, you know, one of the things that we talk about at Woolly is, you know, radical inclusion, but that radical inclusion also includes a cross political viewpoint. So as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned, I'm very happy for conservatives or folks to come in and see our shows. As long as you don't treat someone as less than human, <laughs> right? In the, in, you know, in our spaces and, um, and, you know, don't do harm to people like you, you know, your views, I, I'm ready to, I'm ready to have that discourse. I'm, I'm ready to spark dialogue and conversation with folks who aren't in my echo chamber. Like, absolutely. You know what I mean? But right. I, for me, I hope that the parlance around anti-racism is really one where, folks can understand like there's an activation that needs to happen where we are actively working towards this because the default is white. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, what Willie Mammoth is doing, uh, what, what it's been doing lately with the Weisberg commissions uh, is a really great step in making sure that that discourse can happen and, and renewed uh, or, or, or even refreshed ideas make it into the space. Uh, before we talk about the uh, Weisberg commissions specifically, I wonder, uh, from your perspective, if you can speak to how common or uncommon commissions are generally speaking do is commissioning something that theaters always do or tend to do or is that in itself something that's uh more uh, contemporary of an idea yeah you know i think there are theaters that have been commissioning artists for a long long time 
And a lot of theaters have been commissioning artists, you know, they give, this is one of the ways that they actually are able to help playwrights make a living because there are only certain number of slots at a theater. And, you know, if you're a playwright and you maybe get one production, two productions in a year, you know, <laughs> that doesn't equal a living wage in any way, shape or form. So right. between that and maybe you get a commission from this other place or another commission, et cetera, you're getting, you know, you're basically getting paid to write, right. To take the time to write. So it's pretty, it's one of the, it was one of the ways that the theater industry and has for, for quite some time, you know, tried to make it so that a playwright can actually get paid while they're actually writing the project rather than have them spend all the time writing the project and then shopping it around, which is, Another way that people do it, you know what I mean, if they don't have a commission, um, but ideally you have a relationship with a theater and and um, and they want to see what your next play is going to be. Um, what's what's hard about this in this day and age is that, um, you know, there is, there is since the pandemic in particular, there is a uh, drop off in folks who are loyal and or want to be connected to a particular theater in a particular city or town. So they are more interested in going, you know, deciding what plays or what pieces of art they're going to go and consume because mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff, right? Rather than basically saying, well, I love the work that you do. I may love some stuff more than I love others, but I want to support you and therefore support the organization to you know give commissions to playwrights and to hire people and to do these things so how that affects the commissioning process and program is it's it's one of those it's basically becomes like you get you write this play somebody gives you money to write the play but then they don't produce the play they don't make the play actually happen because of xyz they don't think they can sell it they you know, it needs to be able to be, again, like a single ticket seller, which is different, right? Which means mm -hmm. that you're competing with everything else that is an event in your area for that one ticket versus the sort of subscription model that we were with for such a long time that, you know, you you bought into the idea of an organization, not just one project. And so this sort of, it becomes less about the relationship with playwrights and becomes more about the product, the transaction of does your play fit within what it is that I'm looking for for my for the demographic and can I sell it? And that's that's really tough because you want to have relationships with artists over a long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to you want to help them grow in their art. And so commissions is one way to do that. And I fear that it's going to be you know few and far between because of this issue of trying to get audiences back in the theater after pandemic, after the pandemic. So how did the Weisberg Commission's program come to be? And uh, beyond what you've already uh, explored and, uh, and stated there, what were some of the issues or opportunities that this program is built to address? Well, first, I want to give a lot of you know kudos and love for the Weisberg family and the Weisberg Foundation. They have been such amazing supporters of the theater in particular and other organizations for sure. But I'm going to speak to my industry in the theater here in the DMV 
um, the District um, of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. That's the DMV, not mm-hmm. the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So, um, and specifically Marvin Weisberg, who, you know, just showed up at everything. He loved the theater and he cared so deeply about the ecology of the different, of the arts in in this area. And so when um, when we were talking to the Weisberg Foundation, Marvin passed and they wanted to talk about how to honor his legacy. One of the first things that we thought about was talking about a commissioning program because then it's money going directly to artists to actually make work. And the idea is that these artists are um, connected to this area in some way. They're either from here originally or they live here. And and then the other facet to it is to think about some of the issues specifically around social justice that are affecting this area. And so artists who are interested in... um, in taking on those themes and ideas. Now, interestingly enough, like when you actually, you know, bring people of color into the room and, you know, they're making work, like the personal is political, right? Like, so ultimately um, those ideas and themes of social justice don't feel like they're so, you know, hitting you over the head or overwrought or any of those kinds of things. This is just life and talking about life, you know, in, and, and what, what happens, um, you know, when you're moving through the world, um, and you've been historically excluded from that world, for example, or something like that, you know? So it came about because we wanted to honor Marvin. He was such a huge, huge, um, visionary in this and what better way to actually honor him than to help make the visions of young artists um, happen. Why is it uh, important for the artists who are featured through this program to be uh, DC based or DC adjacent? I understand it, you know, as a, as a wish of the foundation, but from your perspective, what does platforming uh, local artists mean for local theater? Yeah, well, so one of the things that's so fascinating about this area is like a lot of people um, actually move through this area. You know, it's a trans like there's definitely a transient population and a lot of people, you know, are actually I like had no idea are from from the DMV or grew up in Maryland or grew up in Virginia and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things that means that I think is really important and why we were really excited about actually doing this. Um, because we were the ones who actually pitched the idea to them, to the foundation. We weren't mandated by the foundation to do it. We were talking to them and collaborating on what the idea would be. But ultimately, it's it's the idea that actually um, that hyper-local, a way to think about that those issues in our community here would actually speak to the people here right now in this community. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm really interested in that. We're talking about rebuilding audiences. Well, the audience is here, right here, right? They're not going, they're, sometimes they're coming from out of town or whatever, but for the most part, they're people who are dealing with issues and ideas, you know, and challenges and opportunities right here 
here. And so to have somebody who actually understands the place, like, you know, growing up in, in DC is a very particular thing. It's, you know, this idea of a government town, a one industry town, but that actually has almost 800,000 people who don't have representation in government. You know what I mean? Like, mm, wow. it's, it's, fa- it's fascinating, right? And so there are very specific hyper-local, um, you know, I, ideas that I actually think can embed themselves in these plays and in these works of art that really will speak to this community here. And then I think also will translate to my hope is that we do these plays and then they have future lives and they go on to Chicago and New York and San Francisco and Austin and all these other places, because then, you know, again, like you're creating a more complex view of what it is to be human. And that's, that's a big deal. We want people to think of, think more of Washington DC than a political swamp. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, in the world of orchestral commissions, the repeat performances is the real challenge. It's one thing for a composer to get that one performance, but getting that second, third, fifth, 10th performance is really the challenge. Is that also the case in theater? Well, so yes, but, um, I, I make it a huge mission of mine to work with and try and collaborate with as many organizations as possible so that we can actually extend the future, the life of a show. Um, So we just actually um, are concluding soon a national tour of a play called Where We Belong by Madeline Syed, who's a Mohegan theater maker. And um, I I just have, I love this piece. I, I loved it from the first moment I read it and it tells us, tells a story of, you know, her, you know, wanting to get a PhD in Shakespeare, going to England to do so, and really having to reckon with their colonial, not just past, but their present and mm-hmm. what that meant to her, her native family and her, her, her people, you know, and, um, and the fact that that was able to go to Seattle and Chicago and Baltimore and New York, and DC has been, you know, just like overwhelmingly amazing because it's a story that they wouldn't have heard otherwise. You know, where else are they going to hear that story? You know, exactly, exactly. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the systems and initiatives that we may be throwing to the side in the future. You know, we can see the uh, the great impact that commissions offer and even uh, touring shows. But a little earlier, you mentioned uh, subscription models being something that at the very least has to be adjusted uh, in, our, in our more contemporary society. I wonder if subscription models uh, specifically are something that you think um, are sustainable or if we need to be looking at different models when it comes to really supporting these artists and exposing more people to this art. Yeah, we need different models. There's no question about it. And, you know, the theater industry has known we've needed different models for a very long time. And what happened with the pandemic, it just basically accelerated the rate of attrition for those subscriptions, right? And so Mm -hmm. we need new models. Part of those new models have everything to do with being a citizen in this country, right? So, for example, can we get to a place where we don't tie healthcare to employment? Is there a world where that could actually happen? That would be huge for artists. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that would be huge. <laughs> that would be huge for a lot of people. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm just gonna speak for artists in that way. 
and how are we as citizens actually advocating for those things that can actually, you know, make the biggest impact for our industry and not just be a sort of band-aid solution to this idea of subscriptions or various things like that, right? I think about um, how much the student loan debt is is so important for oh, people yeah. who want to go into the arts and how I've been watching it like a hawk, like what is going on, what is happening, how can, you know, um, and how can we continue to advocate for that kind of help um, so that um, so that folks can actually sort of, you know, not be saddled with this and be able to actually, you know, pursue careers that really feel they feel passionate about not just because they're paychecks i so the 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 reason why i'm going so macro is because sometimes i feel like at least in the theater industry we go so micro we go so Mm -hmm. you know we're sort of like navel gazing and like just negotiating with ourselves right about this stuff and i do feel like that idea the the conversation around subscriptions really needs a shake up and really needs some really out of the box exciting thinking um we got rid of our subs we were we were our subscriptions absolutely were you know have been um declining for many, many years. And because we're a theater company that does almost exclusively new work and also, so nobody's heard about it before, you know, and Mm -hmm. also um, work that can be somewhat, you know, provocative, et cetera, right? Like earned revenue has not been, is not actually the biggest piece of the pie for us, right? So we, during the pandemic, started to just said, forget the subscription. We're going to start something new. And our director of marketing at the time, Timmy Metzner, was amazing. He came up with this idea of the golden ticket. And the golden ticket is you get you get a ticket to Woolly Mammoth and you can come as many times as you want, <laughs> whenever you want. Period. Wow. <laughs> End of story. That's it. You have a whole you have a golden ticket. You got the golden ticket. And I love so that. it's a it's a new <laughs> so it's a, it's it's an it's a new take on it. I I it and it's growing, which is great. So we, as opposed to most of the other places, you know, that are trending downward, we're trending upward with the golden ticket. But again, like we started at zero, right? So like we have a ways to go and to even be um, close to where it is that we were. And again, this isn't going to be the biggest piece of the pie for us revenue-wise because of the kind of work that we do. But at least we're going in the right direction, which feels like a very different thing that I'm hearing from my colleagues. Well, how can uh, people who might be interested in that golden ticket, learning more about the Weisberg Commission uh, recipients, where can they get all of that information? Woollymammoth.net. So we are we are .net because Woolly Mammoths existed way before this organization <laughs> did. <laughs> so we're, it's spelled W-O-O-L-L-Y-M-A-M-M-O-T-H, woollymammoth.net. Check us out. We just did a refresh on the website. I'm so proud of our team. I'm so excited about our first show that's coming up, My Mama and the Full Scale Invasion, um, about by a Ukrainian playwright. And it's going to be... She even talks, she talks to an alien, she talks to God, she talks to Zelensky, she talks to Biden. I mean, it's a great show. So <laughs> hopefully you'll get to come see it. Sounds interesting. Well, to to close us out, I wanted to uh, go full circle and take us back to Queens. Somewhere in Queens, uh, there is a 14-year-old who wants to get into theater, but 
doesn't quite know how. There's the parent of that 14-year-old who has no idea what those aspirations are or what it could look like for them logistically, financially. What are your words of advice to those folks, these next generation of not only uh, theater aficionados and professionals, but people who are actually going to keep the art form afloat for the next generation? Oh, yeah. Go into the theater, please. We need you. We need you. So um, what I would say to that young 14-year-old is, you know, I mean, I I got introduced to the theater through a teacher, you know, and so who are the people around you who are connected to the arts? Is it an aunt? Is it an uncle? Is it a is it a teacher? Is it a friend? Is it a friend's mom? You know, and how can how can you actually get to a place where you are um, also there seeing, watching and understanding what it is that um what you know what the art form can be and getting excited about it because ultimately you know that fire is the thing that is going to carry you through it's going to carry you through so much of the challenges that you're going to face in thinking about how do you make a living what's the next step where are you going to go to school what's you know what do my parents want want me to do with my life etc and if you can just stoke that inspirational fire within you in terms of your art, whatever you can do to do that, and then keep and create, 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 create. That's another way to stoke that fire because you're going to need it, you know, and don't let anybody extinguish that. Do not let anybody extinguish that. Um, we need you. Keep it lit. Love me tonight, let the devil take tomorrow. I know that I must have your kiss, although it dooms me, though it consumes me. The kiss of fire. Ah, burn me. Maria inspired us to keep it lit there. So I thought I would close out uh, that conversation with a very, very important musician uh, who called Queen's home once upon a time, Louis Armstrong, the tune called Kiss of Fire. I'm sure I've talked about it before here on Triloquy. If you ever find yourself in New York and want to take a field trip over to Queens, please check out the Louis Armstrong Museum. I mean, arguably the most important American musician to ever live. One of the many incredible things about Queens, New York, including the fact that it gave the world Maria Manuela Guyanes, one of the most important folks in theater today. So uh, be sure to, uh, in addition to checking out Queens, if you make yourself uh, make your way to New York, be sure to uh, check out Woolly Mammoth. Uh, I'll have uh, their link uh, in the uh, description of this opus for you to learn more about their upcoming uh, projects and how you uh, can be a part of it. All right. So uh, just a really quick triloquy for this week. Like I mentioned, I'm in this hotel room here in Cincinnati uh, on my way home back to New York in less than uh, two hours at this point. And um, I'm, I'm just filled with gratitude. You know, folks who are closest to me will know uh, how many challenges I've uh, had uh, on my job uh, with the American Composers Orchestra uh, this past year and a half now. It's definitely not easy work. It's definitely um, work that <laughs> gives me a headache many days. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, keep it trill. 
I've uh, even, you know, considered uh, other bits of work uh, over my time with ACO, taking a, a job interview or two. But days like today really make it worth it. Um, you know, for, for folks who are unfamiliar with uh, our Earshot programs, basically uh, the big program that I manage um, is releasing calls for scores um, and partnering with orchestras across the country to get uh, these new pieces of music uh, performed uh, and recorded all toward infusing the industry with new pieces of music. It is so hard and so difficult to put together some of these partnerships because there are so many orchestras and ensembles that are afraid of isolating their uh, longtime audience members, their traditional audience. But to just see the look and the hope and the gratitude on the faces of these composers after these performances uh, it's it's all worth it, and and I'm just so grateful. So why am I including this in the triloquy? Um, the work of of fighting uh, to decolonize classical music is not easy. There, it's it's uh it's it's very fatiguing. I, I lose many nights of sleep, especially juggling all the stuff that I juggle. But not only do I get to do my part in putting these composers on and exposing musicians and audiences to new music, I meet a whole bunch of incredible people along the way. I want to uh, give a shout out to A. Corey Hill, uh, who writes uh, for I Care. If you listen, we had uh, uh, she's a. Uh, um, they're uh, Cincinnati-based, so we had a, a really, really, really incredible uh, conversation following tonight's uh, earshot readings. Um, you know, just meeting folks in the orchestra uh, here in Cincinnati uh, who listen to the Triloquy podcast. You know, those people connections, the human connections and the human moments, uh, I think is, is really what I, I love most. So, you know, in your work, as you're uh, doing the anti-racist thing in, in whatever way you can, I'm sure there are times where you don't know what to do or might feel hopeless or just feel like throwing in the towel. Well, I'm here to tell you, do not do it. Never give up. You know, that's one of the, the main phrases and mantras um, of, uh, of my Buddhist practice. Never, ever, ever give up. You, you have to uh, keep pushing. Think about how hard folks like Malcolm X worked all the way to him getting shot by his own people. You know, uh, Malcolm X, Ida B. Wells, you know, I, I could just, Nina Simone, I, I could name people, Paul Robeson all day long. The work is hard. The work is tiring. You know, it can really beat you up. But you know what? The opposition wants us to be tired. The opposition wants us to give up. The opposition wants us to lay down. The opposition wants us to take days off. The opposition wants us to be erased. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. As the meme uh, on the internet that I often quote, I'm a bad bitch. You can't kill me. You know, so no matter how hard this work is. I'm dedicated uh, to keep going. And I have moments of weakness where I want to throw in the towel. But at the end of the day, I'm keeping my spirit strong and trying to inspire each and every one of you to keep your spirit strong. Do what you can in your own way. There is something in your life that you can challenge or some status quo that you can dismantle. Dialogue with folks uh, to get, whether it's classical music or whatever it is, decolonized. Um, all the way to where we're really enjoying culture, we're enjoying each other, no one is marginalized, and we are creating a society that is ours. Um, and it's all of ours to create. You know, the patriarchy is not women's work. That's all of our work. Racism and anti-racism 
um, is not something for just black and brown people to deal with. It's for all of us to deal with. Decolonizing classical music is not just my work. It's not just the work of arts activists. It's not just the work of composers or arts administrators. It's all of our work. So please do what you can in those tiring moments like I am right now. You know, it can be difficult, but we gotta keep pushing. We gotta keep pushing. We gotta keep pushing. Um, if you're listening to this on the week it comes out, be sure to visit AmericanComposers.org to check out how you can be among uh, the latest Earshot recipients. We're looking for American vernacular music. Again, dismantling uh, the status quo around classical music, uh, all the way to uh, platforming scores that highlight hip hop or bluegrass, mariachi, banda, uh, the blues, Anything that you can think of that was born right here in the Americas, we want to hear it. If you have any questions, be sure to uh, reach out to me. Uh, the call for scores uh, for this next round closes on October 8th, 2023. So again, you only have a few days from uh, when this is uh, coming out. But I'm dedicated and I want to change this thing and I want to do it with you and I want to do it for the next generation. Thank you as always for your continued support, for supporting this show, uh, checking out the podcast and supporting all of my other work. Really looking forward to uh, dialoguing with y'all, uh, with uh, with anything you got. Looking forward to getting some rest whenever <laughs> I get to do that. Um, and I'll talk to y'all again next week. Peace. <laughs>